0: Section Four of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter Two, Louis Philippe and His Family, Part Two. In this citadel, the Duchesse de Berry was confined with every precaution against escape or rescue, and the restraint and monotony of such a life soon told upon a woman of her character. She could play the heroine, acting well her part with an admiring world for her audience but quote, cabined, cribbed confined quote, in an old dilapidated castle her courage and her health gave way she was cheered however at first by legitimate testimonies of devotion chateaubriand wrote her a memorable letter imploring her in the name of m de malherbe his ancestor who had defended louis the sixteenth to let him undertake her defence if she were brought to trial but the reigning family of france had no wish to proceed to such an extremity the Duchess had not come of a stock in which all the women were sans reproche, like Marie-Amélie. Her grandmother, Queen Caroline of Naples, the friend of Lady Hamilton and of Lord Nelson, had been notoriously a bad woman. Her sister, Queen Christina of Spain, had made herself equally famous, and doubts had already been thrown on the legitimacy of the son of the Duchess, the posthumous child of the Duc de Berry. The Queen of France, who was almost a saint, had been fond of her young relative for her many engaging qualities, and what to do with her in justice to france was a difficult problem to the consternation and disgust of the legitimists the heroine of la vendée dropped from her pedestal and sank into the mire she lost everything says louis blanc even the sympathy of the most ultra-partisans of the bourbon dynasty and she deserved the fate that overtook her it was the sequel to the discovery of a terrible secret a secret whose publicity became a just punishment for her having in pursuit of her own purposes let loose on france the dogs of civil war in the midst of enthusiasm for her courage and pity for her fate rose a rumor that the duchess would shortly give birth to a child it was even so the news fell like a blow on the hearts of the royalists if she had made a clandestine morganatic marriage she had by the law of france forfeited her position as regent during her son's minority she had forgotten his claims on her and those of france if there was no marriage she had degraded herself past all sympathy at any rate now she was harmless the policy of the government was manifestly to let her child be born at Blais, and then send her to her neapolitan home her desire was to leave Blais before her confinement in vain she pleaded her health and a tendency to consumption the government sent physicians to Blais, among them the doctor who had attended the duchess after the birth of the duc de bordeaux for it insisted on having full proof of her disgrace before releasing her but before this disgrace was announced in paris Twelve ardent young legitimists had bound themselves to fight twelve duels with twelve leading men of the opposite party, who might, if she were brought to trial, injure her cause. The first of these duels took place. Armand Carrel, the journalist, being the liberal champion, while M. Roulabory fought for the Duchess. The duel was with swords and lasted three minutes. Twice Carrel wounded his adversary in the arm, but as he rushed on in the third time he received a deep wound in the abdomen. The news spread through Paris, the Prime Minister, M. Thiers, sent his private secretary for authentic news of Carrel's state. The attendants refused to allow the wounded man to be disturbed. Quote, let him see me, said Carrel, for I have a favor to ask of M. Thiers. That he will let no proceedings be taken against M. roux Government, after this, became anxious to quench the loyalty of the Duchesse de Berry's defenders as soon and as effectually as possible. The duel with Armand Carrel was fought February 2, 1833. On the twenty second of February, General Bugot, commander of the fortress of Blais, received from the Duchess the following declaration. Under the pressure of circumstances and of measures taken by government, I think it due to myself and to my children, though I have had grave reasons for keeping my marriage a secret, to declare that I have been privately married during my late sojourn in Italy. Signed, Marie Caroline. From that time up to the month of May, the Duchess continued to make vain efforts to obtain her release before the birth of her child it had been intimated to her that she should be sent to Palermo as soon afterwards as she should be able to travel. The government took every precaution that the event might be verified when it took place. Six or seven of the principal inhabitants of Blais were stationed in an adjoining chamber, as is the custom at the birth of princes. A little girl having been born, these witnesses were summoned to the chamber by Madame de Hautefort, the Duchess's lady-in-waiting. The Duchess answered their questions firmly, and, on returning to the next room, her own physician declared on oath that the Duchess was the lawful wife of Count Hector Lucchesi Pali of the family of Campo Formio of Naples, gentleman of the bedchamber to the King of the two Sicilies living at Palermo. This was the first intimation given of the parentage of the child a month later. Marie Caroline and her infant embarked on board a French vessel attended by Marshal Bugot, and were landed at Palermo. Very few of the Duchess's most ardent admirers in former days were willing to accompany her. Her baby died before it was many months old. Charles X refused to let her have any further care or charge of her son. Quote, As Madame Lucesi Pali, he said, she had forfeited all claims to royal consideration. A reconciliation, however official rather than real, was patched up by Chateaubriand between the Duchess and Charles X, but her political career was over. She was allowed to see the Duc de Bordeaux for two or three days once a year. The young prince was thenceforward under the maternal care of his aunt, the Duchesse d'Angoulême. The Duchesse de Berry passed the remainder of her adventurous life in tranquillity. Her marriage with Count Lucchesi Pali was apparently a happy one. They had four children. She owned a palace in Styria, and another on the Grand Canal at Venice, where she gave popular parties. In 1847 she gave some private theatricals, at which were present twenty-seven persons belonging to royal or imperial families her buoyancy of spirit kept her always gay. One would have supposed that she would have been overwhelmed by the fall we have related. She was good-natured, charitable, and extravagant. She died leaving heavy debts, which the Duc de Bordeaux paid for her. Her daughter Louise, sister of the Duc de Bordeaux, married the Duke of Parma, who was assassinated in 1854. Their daughter married Don Carlos, who claims at present to be rightful heir to the thrones of France and Spain. She died in 1854, shortly after the count Pali, the duchesse de berry who in her later years became very devout and, d'après la manière italienne as some one has said wrote thus about his death quote, i have been so tried that my poor head reels the loss of my good and pious daughter made me almost crazy but the care of my husband had somewhat calmed me when god took him to himself he died like a saint in my arms with his children around him smiling at me and pointing to heaven The Duchess died suddenly at Brussels in 1870, aged 71, and, adds an intensely legitimist writer from whom I have taken these details of her declining years, had she lived till 1873 she would have given her son better advice than that he followed. Without following the ins and outs of politics during the first ten years of Louis-Philippe's reign, which were chequered by revolts, émeutes, and attempts at regicide, I pass on to the next event of general interest, the explosion of the quote unquote, infernal machine of Fieschi. It was customary for King Louis Philippe to make a grand military promenade through Paris on one of the three days of July, which during his reign were days of public festivity. On the morning of July twenty-eighth, eighteen thirty-five, as the clock struck ten, the king, accompanied by his three elder sons, Marshals Martier and Lobau, his ministers, his staff, his household, and many generals, rode forth to review forty thousand troops along the boulevard. At midday they reached the Boulevard du Temple. There, as the king was bending forward to receive a petition, a sudden volley of musketry took place, and the pavement was strewed with dead and dying. Marshal Mortier was killed, together with a number of officers of various grades, some bystanders, a young girl, and an old man. The king had not been shot, but as his horse started he had received a severe contusion on the arm. The Duc d'Orléans and the Prince de Joinville were slightly hurt. Smoke came pouring from the third-story windows of a house, Number 50, on the boulevard. A man sprang from the window, seized a rope hanging from the chimney, and swung himself on to a lower roof. As he did so, he knocked down a flower-pot, which attracted attention to his movements. A police agent saw him, and a National Guard arrested him. He was in his shirt-sleeves, and his face was covered with blood. The infernal machine he had employed consisted of twenty-five gun-barrels on a stand so constructed that they could all be fired at once. Happily, two did not go off, and four burst wounding the wretch who had fired them instantly the reception of the king which had been cold when he set forth changed into rapturous enthusiasm he and his sons had borne themselves with the greatest bravery the queen had been about to quit the tuileries to witness the review when the door of her dressing-room was pushed open and a colonel burst in exclaiming madame the king has been fired at he is not hurt nor the princes but the boulevard is strewn with corpses the queen raising her trembling hands to heaven waited only for a repetition of his assurance that her dear ones were all safe, and then set out to find the King. She met him on the staircase, and husband and wife wept in each other's arms. The Queen then went to her sons, looked at them, and touched them, hardly able to believe that they were not seriously wounded, and turned away, shuddering, from the blood on M. Thiers' clothes. Then, returning to her chamber, she sent a note at once to her younger boys, Domal and Montpensier, who were with their tutors at the Château d'Eux. It began with these words, quote, "'Fall down on your knees, my children. God has preserved your father.' Of course the Legitimists, and likewise the Republicans, were accused of inspiring the attempt of Fieschi. The trials that took place about six months later proved that the assassin Fieschi was a wretch bearing a strong resemblance to our own Guiteau. The funeral ceremonies of the victims of the infernal machine were celebrated with great pomp. The affair led to a partial reconciliation between the new government and the Legitimist clergy. It led also to certain restrictions on the press and an added stringency in the punishment for crimes of the like character on january thirty one eighteen thirty six the trial of the prisoners took place before the peers the crowd of spectators was immense there were five prisoners but the eyes of the spectators were fixed on only three the first was a man undersized nervous and quick in his movements his face which was disfigured by recent scars had an expression of cunning and impudence his forehead was narrow his hair cropped close, one corner of his mouth was disfigured by a scar, his smile was insolent, and so was his whole bearing. He seemed anxious to concentrate the attention of all present on himself, smiled and bowed to every one he knew, and seemed well satisfied with his odious importance. The second was an old man, pale and ill. He bore himself with perfect calmness. He seated himself where he was told to sit, and gave no sign of emotion throughout the trial. The third was utterly prostrated by fear. The first was Fieschi, the second was called Moret. the third was a grocer named Pepin. The two last had been arrested on the testimony of Nina Lasave, who had had Fieschi for her lover. The life of this man had been always base and infamous. He was a Corsican by birth, and had been a French soldier. He had fought bravely, but after his discharge he had been imprisoned for theft and counterfeiting. He led a wandering life from town to town, living on his wits and indulging all his vices. He had even succeeded in getting some small favors from government, but finding that he could not long escape punishment for crimes known to the police, he undertook, apparently without any especial motive, the wholesale murder of king, court, and princes. During his imprisonment, his vanity had been so great that the officers of the Crown played upon it in order to obtain confessions and information. The only witness against Mouret was Nina Lasave, who insisted that, Fieschi having invented the murderous instrument, Mouret had devised a use for it, and that Papin had furnished the necessary funds for its completion. I give Louis Blanc's account of Fieschi's behaviour on his trial, because when foreign nations have reproached us for the scandal of the licence granted to the murderer of President Garfield on his trial, I have never seen it remarked that Guiteau's conduct was almost exactly like that of Fieschi. With effrontery, with a miserable kind of pride, and with smiles of triumph on his lips, he alluded to his victims with theatrical gesticulations, and plumed himself on the magnitude of his own infamy answering his judges by ignoble buffooneries, playing the part of an orator, making pretensions to learning, looking round to see what effect he was producing, and courting applause. And some of those who sat in judgment on him did applaud. At each of his atrocious vulgarisms many of the peers laughed, and this laugh naturally encouraged him. Did he make a movement to rise, voices called out, Fieschi desires to say something, Monsieur le Président. Fieschi is about to speak the audience was unwilling to lose a word that might fall from the lips of so celebrated a scoundrel he could hardly contain himself for pride and satisfaction his bloody hand was eager to shake hands with the public and there were those willing to submit to it he exchanged signs with the woman nina who was seated in the audience he posed before the spectators with infinite satisfaction what more can we say he directed the proceedings he prompted or browbeat the witnesses he undertook the duties of a prosecuting attorney he regulated the trial he directed coarse jokes at the unhappy Pepin. But, reckless as he was, he dared not meddle with Moret. He had no hesitation in accusing himself. He owned himself the worst of criminals, and declared that he esteemed himself happy to be able to pay with his own blood for the blood of the unhappy victims of his crime. But the more he talked about his coming fate, the plainer it was that he expected pardon, and the more he flattered those on whom that pardon might depend. Quote. The trial lasted twelve days, and very little was elicited about the conspiracy if indeed there was one. Suddenly Pépin, whose terror had been abject, rallied his courage, refused to implicate Mouret or to make revelations, and kept his resolution to the last. One of the five prisoners was acquitted, one was condemned to a brief imprisonment, and Mouret, Pépin, and Fieschi were sent to the block. Up to almost the last moment Fieschi expected pardon, but his last words were to his confessor, quote, I wish I could let you know about myself five minutes from now, end quote. On the scaffold, Mouret's white hair elicited compassion from the spectators. Pepin, at the last moment, was offered a pardon if he would tell whence the money came that he had advanced to Fieschi. He refused firmly, and firmly met his fate. The next day, the woman who had betrayed her lover and the rest was presiding at a café on the Place de la Bourse, having been engaged as an attraction. After these horrors, we turn with relief to some account of good and noble women, the ladies of Louis-Philippe's family. After the murderous attempt of Fieschi, the king lived under a continual expectation of assassination. He no longer walked the streets of Paris with his cane under his arm. When he drove, he sat with his back to the horses, because that position gave less certainty to the aim of an assassin. It was said that his carriages were lined with sheet-iron. He was thirteen times shot at, and the pallid looks of the poor queen were believed to arise from continual apprehension. Her nerves had been shaken by the diabolical attempt of Fieschi, and she never afterwards would leave her husband, even for a few days. She stayed away from the deathbed of her daughter, the Queen of the Belgians, lest in her absence he should be assassinated. Neuilly was the home of the family, its beloved particular retreat. The greatest pang that Louis-Philippe suffered in 1848 was its total destruction by rioters. The little palace was furnished in perfect taste, with elegance yet with simplicity. The inlaid floors were especially beautiful the rooms were decorated with pictures many of them representing passages in the early life of the king in one he was teaching mathematics in a swiss school in another he was romping with his children his own cabinet was decorated with his children's portraits and with works of art by his accomplished daughter the princess marie the family sitting-room was furnished with the princess's embroidery and there was a table painted on velvet by the duchesse de berry the library was large and contained many english books among them a magnificent edition of shakespeare the park enclosed one hundred acres the gardens were laid out in the english style a branch of the seine ran through the grounds with boat-houses and bath-houses for the pleasure of the young princes and in one night this cherished home was laid in ruins all is possible said louis philippe to a visitor who talked with him at clermont in his exile all is possible to france an empire a republic the comte de chambord or my grandson but one thing is impossible that any of these should last. On a tué le respect. The nation has killed respect. Queen Marie Amélie was born in Naples in 1782. Her mother was a daughter of Maria Theresa and sister to Marie Antoinette. This lady was not one who inspired respect, but she had some good qualities. She was a good mother to her children, and had plenty of ability. Of course she hated the French Revolution, and everything that savoured of what are called liberal opinions, her career, which was full of vicissitudes and desperate plots, ended by her being dismissed ignominiously from Naples by the English ambassador, and she went to end her days with her nephew at Vienna. Marie-Amélie used sometimes to tell her children how she had wept when a child for the death of the little Dauphin, the eldest son of Louis the Sixteenth, who, before the Revolution broke out, was taken away from the evil to come. She was to have been married to him had he lived. When older she had an early love affair with her cousin, Prince Antoine of Austria, but he was destined for the church, and the youthful courtship came to an untimely end. When she first met her future husband, she and her family were living in a sort of provisional exile in Palermo. The princess was twenty-seven, Louis-Philippe was ten or twelve years older, and they seemed to have been quite determined to marry each other very soon after their acquaintance began. It was not easy to do so, however, for the duke, as we have seen, was at that period too much a republican to suit even an English admiral, but the princess declared that she would go into a convent if the marriage was forbidden, and on December twenty-five, eighteen o nine, she became the wife of Louis-Philippe. No description could do justice to the purity and charity of this admirable woman, and in her good works she was seconded by her sister-in-law, Madame Adelaide, and by her daughter. Quote, the Queen, her almoner tells us, had five hundred thousand francs a year for her personal expenses, and gave away four hundred thousand of them. Quote, m appert she would say to him give those five hundred francs we spoke of but put them down upon next month's account the waters run low this month and my purse is empty quote. an american lady visiting the establishment of a great dressmaker in paris observed an old black silk dress hanging over a chair she remarked with some surprise quote, i did not know you would turn and fix up old dresses quote, i do so only for the queen was the answer the imposture ingratitude and even insolence of some of Marie-Amelie's petitioners, failed to discourage her benevolence. For instance, an old Bonapartist lady, according to M. Appert, one day wrote to her, Madame, if the Bourbon had not returned to France for the misfortune of the country, my beloved mistress and protectress, the Empress Marie-Louise, would still be on the throne, and I should not be under the humiliating necessity of telling you that I am without bread, and that the wretched bed on which I sleep is about to be thrown out of the garret I inhabit, because I cannot pay a year's rent. I dare not ask you for assistance, for my heart is with my real sovereign, and I cannot promise you my gratitude. If, however, you think fit to preserve a life which, since the misfortunes of my country, has been full of bitterness, I will accept a loan. I should blush to receive a gift. I am, madame, your servant, C. When this impertinent letter was handed to the almoner, the Queen had written on it, She must be very unhappy, for she is very unjust. A hundred francs to be sent to her immediately and I beg M. Appert to make inquiries concerning this lady's circumstances." In vain the almoner remonstrated. The only effect of his remonstrance was that the Queen authorized him to make her gift three hundred francs, if he found it necessary. When he knocked at the door of the garret of the petitioner, she opened it with agitation. "'Oh, Monsieur,' she said, "'are you the Commissioner of Police come to arrest me for my outrageous letter to the Queen? I am so unhappy that at times I become deranged.' I am sorry to have written as I did to a princess who to all the poor is good and charitable for answer m appert showed her her own letter with the queen's memorandum written upon it there was no lack of heartfelt gratitude then he says and no lack of poverty to need the triple benefaction End end of chapter two end of section four